0: Good morning, M.C. Arlington. It's great to be with you this morning. I'm Joe Carter. I'm the associate pastor for our location. Throughout the rest of the summer, we're gonna be in the book of Psalms. We're gonna be exploring the depths and beauty in this book, and if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 16. We're gonna be reading verses five through 11. Before we get to the text, though, I want us to consider one question. Do you enjoy God? To enjoy means to take delight or pleasure in something. Do you take delight and pleasure in God? Some of you, that might strike you as kind of a weird question. Maybe you feel like a category error. A category error is when we assign a quality to something which doesn't really fit. can only be assigned to another category. For instance, if I were to say the number four is blue or the theory of relativity is eating breakfast, those would be category errors. Numbers don't have the quality of color and theories don't have the ability to eat. You may think the same thing is true of, for enjoying God. It may just feel wrong to include God in the category of things that we enjoy. And you may be thinking to yourself, I revere God, but what I enjoy is taking naps. Or I worship God, but what I enjoy is chocolate ice cream. I love God, but what I enjoy is hanging out with my friends. But I hope to show you, it's not only, God is not only someone you should enjoy, but that you will not truly find meaning and purpose and happiness in this life unless you make it your life's pursuit to enjoy God. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that our not enjoying God, whether because we don't know how to enjoy God or whether we don't, if we're not motivated to enjoy God, is one of the biggest problems in our lives. I didn't be so bold as to suggest That is probably the biggest problem in your life. But before we consider this, let me take time to pray for our time together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for allowing us to come together today to reflect on your holy word. Open our hearts so that we may see the truth that you're revealing to us. Help us to leave here today with a better understanding of how we can better enjoy you. And help us to leave with a greater appreciation for the sacrifice you made for us. We ask all this in your holy name. Amen. So about 20 years ago, I was wandering through a library, and I stumbled across a novella called A River Runs Through It by Norman McLean. And I'd seen the, the movie based on the book about a decade earlier, and so I thought it'd be worth reading. And for some reason, I never got past the first page of that book, but that one page changed my life. And A River Runs Through It is about a story about a young man in 1900s in Montana and he talks about his, how his father was a Presbyterian minister and an avid outdoorsman. And then on Sundays, between the services, between the morning and evening worship services, he says, quote, We had to study the Westminster Shorter Catechism for an hour and then recite before we could walk the hills with him while he unwound between services. But he never asked us more than the first question of the catechism. What is the chief end of man? And we answered together so one of us could carry on if the other forgot. Man's chief end is to glorify God. And to enjoy him forever. This always seemed to satisfy him, as indeed such a beautiful answer should have. I had never heard before that the chief end of man, that is our purpose in life, was to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I thought that was indeed a beautiful answer. Also, that it couldn't possibly be true. Sure, we're supposed to glorify God. I knew that was somewhere in First Corinthians. But where did the Presbyterians get the idea that we're supposed to enjoy God? So I found a copy of the Westminster Catechism and I looked at the first question, what is the chief end of man? It has a footnote. And on that footnote, it says it got, it got the answer from Psalm 16, five through 11. So let's look at that passage together. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. To me, this is one of the most beautiful poems in all the book of Psalms. But rather than go through it line by line, I want us to look at the last line and really focus on that because it summarizes everything that comes before. So we're going to take each of these three phases in this verse, and we're going to look at the three concepts, path, presence, and pleasure. And we're going to take all that, and we're going to see how it relates to our, helps us understand our purpose of our lives. So the first phrase is, you make known to me the path of life. And this is work of the Holy Spirit. And how do we know this is the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, because Jesus said the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church and the life of the believer. That Jesus says in the Gospel of John, he, the Spirit, will glorify me because it is from him that he will receive what he will make known to you. And one of the things he makes known to you is the path of life. And we can restate this by saying that the Holy Spirit makes the path of life known to those who have put their faith in Jesus. So what does this mean, path of life? There are a few things we need to understand to really understand uh, what this phrase means, how it applies to us. First, a path is a a route you take to get somewhere. And a path always refers to a path, a trail that someone who's walked before to to get you there. If you're using a machete to hack your way through a jungle or forest, you may be creating a path but you're not walking along a path. A path is something somebody's already created that you are following along. And what makes a path a pathway is that someone has come before you and make a way for you to follow. And for us, the one whose path we are called to follow is Jesus. And that's what it means to be a disciple, to follow along the path that Jesus created so that we can become more like Jesus himself. And the Holy Spirit is leading us on a path in such a way that we can follow Jesus in order to become more like Jesus. And the second thing we need to know about paths is that it implies movement. You don't just stand on a path. You travel along a path. You move along a path. And we'll see why that matters in just a moment. And finally, some paths end in a destination. But what is being made known to us is the path of life. This is a path that leads to a destination, yet that path doesn't stop there. Jesus says in John 3.36 that whosoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Eternal life is not just something that happens in the future. The moment you put your trust and faith in Jesus, that's when your eternal life began. So your eternal life started that moment, and it's going to continue on for all time, forever. And since you have eternal life, the path of life must be an eternal path. The path of life the Holy Spirit is leading you on starts when you put your faith in Jesus. And it's a path that's gonna go on and on and on for all time. And what this means is that the Holy Spirit is never going to stop making a path for you. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will be with you forever. So the leading of the Holy Spirit, therefore, doesn't end when we die and go to heaven. The Holy Spirit is leading us on the path of life now. He's gonna be leading us on this path of life for all of eternity. So the Holy Spirit is treading down a path for us to follow. He's making straight our paths and asking us to trust to where he's leading. And where is he leading us? Well, he's leading us to travel in the presence of God the Father. As the next phrase says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. In whose presence? In the presence of God the Father. And here we can summarize the first concept from this verse that we need to know. The Holy Spirit is leading you on the path of life in the presence of God the Father. The Holy Spirit is leading you on the path of life in the presence of God the Father. But before we talk about our next concept, presence, we need to understand how the use of this term path changes how we think about being in the presence of God. And for the longest time, I had this visual image of the presence of God that was very static and very stationary. Now, I knew enough about heaven to know that it wasn't like the cartoon version. We're going to be sitting around on clouds, playing harps and singing worship songs. But I did assume that the Holy Spirit would lead me into the presence of God the Father and just kind of drop me off. That the presence of the Father in heaven was my final destination. And I pictured myself standing in God's presence and I would be with God forevermore. And since I would be with God forevermore, I pictured myself just standing still for all time, for all eternity. And to be honest, that's a very boring image of heaven. Who wants to just be standing around for all time? But that's not what this verse says. It says, What is being made known to us is the path of life. Life goes on forever. So the path goes on forever, which means activity and action and movement goes on forever. God didn't create us to be static. Now, this is the God who calls us to action, to be fruitful and multiply to rule the earth, to to do the land, to to go and make disciples. God is continuously calling us to take action. And he's calling us to take action, to live our lives, to do everything we do in the presence of God. So what then do we mean by presence? Aren't we always in the presence of God? After all, one of the attributes of God is his omniscience. God is always everywhere at all times. And indeed, it's true that since God's power and knowledge extends to all parts of his creation, he himself is present, fully present, at all parts of creation. All of creation is, in the sense, in God's presence. As Psalm 139 asks, where shall I flee from your presence? And the answer is nowhere. There's nowhere you can escape God's presence. Even when if you go to hell, you can't fully escape God's presence. But there's another sense meant by the term Presence. The most common Hebrew term for presence also means face. So he's translated, implying that we're in the face of God. We're having a relational, personal encounter with God. For example, Psalm twenty-seven, eight says, "My heart says of you, seek His face, Your face, Lord, I will seek." And 2 Chronicles seven, fourteen says, "If my people, who humble, call me by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear." from heaven I will forgive their sin and heal their land. So as these examples show, seeking the face of God is, just, is not just some intellectual acknowledgement of his omnipresence. It's seeking an intimate, relational experience of God. And the pastor theologian, John Piper, has a helpful explanation of what it means to be in the presence of God. He says, quote, our experience of God's presence means that we taste or feel or realize the reality of God more directly, more authentically, more intimately, more effectively, that is producing more effects in our lives, more certainly, more satisfyingly, or more terrifyingly, and so on. In other words, his presence as we experience him is the heightening of his reality in our lives, either for good, if we are in his grace, or for ill, if we are under his wrath, which is why Jesus makes all the difference here to shield us and make God a welcoming reality or presence for us. So there's one phrase in Piper's explanation that I think is particularly helpful. Being in God's presence is a heightening of his reality in our lives. Being in God's presence is a heightening of the reality in our lives. In Pastor Eric's office, there's a flag in a frame and on that flag, there are two words, quorum Deo. And quorum Deo is a Latin phrase meaning in the presence of God it's been said that the presence of God is one of the primary themes of the entire Bible. And the ultimate purpose of the Christian life is to live quorum Deo. To live out your life, all of your life, starting right now and continuing on forever, with a heightened sense of God, the reality of God in your life. That's the second takeaway we need to take from this verse. We are called to live our lives in the presence of God that is with a heightened reality of God in our life. We are called to live our lives in the presence of God. That means with a heightened reality of God in our life. So what does this look like? What would it look like for us to live our lives quorum Deo? What does it look like to live with a heightened reality of the presence of God in our lives? And I think in some ways it would look a lot like how we live with a heightened presence of screens in our life. I think how often you turn your face to a screen you turn your face to a screen, to look at a smartphone, or you look at the screen on your laptop, on your TV. you look at the screen on your cars or even on your microwaves. If you're like most Americans, you literally turn your face to a screen dozens or hundred times a day. And my point is not to make you feel guilty about how often you look at screens. Screens can be valuable. We have screens in this auditorium. I lose screen- look at a screen when I'm looking at my notes for my sermon. There may be reasons we need to limit our screen time. But that's a sermon for another day. My point is merely that much of our life in turning to screens, we do so because in looking at turning to screens, we're seeking something valuable. If we're before a screen at the movie theater, we're probably seeking entertainment. If you're looking at a screen on your laptop or a computer at work, you're seeking productivity. If we're before a screen in the auditorium like here, we could be seeking God's word or you're reading the Bible on a screen on your smartphones, we turn our face to a screen because we're seeking something good, something valuable. And in the same way, we should turn our face to God because we are seeking something good, something valuable. We're seeking the fullness of joy. Verse 11 says that in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. Now fullness means to be filled to capacity. So fullness of joy means to be filled to capacity with joy. Will you fill the capacity with joy? Probably not. And part of the reason is that you may misunderstand what it means to be filled with the fullness of joy. And I think there are two ways we must understand fullness of joy. And the first way we must understand the concept is we think of a joy as a solid rather than as gas. I don't don't mean joy as literally a solid or a gas, but when we think about it metaphorically, we think of joy as just a solid thing, And so when we think about, let's think, for example, like um, all emotions take a solid shape. And let's say joy, the joy you have right now, can fit into a box about 10 by 10 feet. Now imagine taking this box, a 10 by 10 foot box, and placing it into your heart. Do you got that? you got that image in your head now? Now take a close look at the picture. Do you have any space around that? Is there more room for other emotions besides this? this box in there? What I mean is this, when you picture the image of joy, this box of joy in your heart, do you have room for other emotions like sorrow or pain or loneliness? Of course you do because no matter how big your heart is at the time you put that box in there, it's gonna get, cre- it's gonna expand. You're gonna expand the picture in your head so that you, because you can have more than one emotion. So now let's run this thought experiment again Now, let's imagine most emotions take the shape of a solid. But let's say joy is an exception. Let's imagine joy as a gas. Now, you probably remember from chemistry class that one of the properties of a gas is that it expands to fit its container. So now imagine joy in your heart. If joy is like a gas, it will expand to fill your whole heart. So what happens when you add some other emotions? Well, let's take a box of anger and put that in there. Let's take a box of anxiety and put that in there and a box of boredom. What happens to the joy? Well, it may get squeezed a bit, but it's still all there. You haven't lost any of it. It's still in every space and crevice that something isn't already taking up. And that's how we need to think about fullness of joy, especially in this part of our life, on this side of heaven. Now, right now, we may have a lot of negative emotions that are fighting for space within our heart, but one day, those emotions are gonna be gone. As Revelation 21 four tells us, one day there will be no more mourning or sorrow or pain because the old order has passed away. So right now, your heart may be filled with a lot of negative emotions, but you can also, at the same time, be filled with joy. You can be filled with joy because you are in the presence of God. And that was true for David, the author of this psalm, and it can be true for you too. As we see throughout the Psalms, David still had negative emotions. He still got scared and lonely and discouraged and anxious, but he also had fullness of joy, and you can too. And the encouraging thing is that the more you clear out those emotions you don't want, the more you let go of the hurt and pain and frustration, the more spacing you have in your heart for that joy to expand, the joy that's already there, it just needs opportunity to expand. And the second way we must understand the concept of fullness of joy is that we think in terms of either or. We think that we can either have God, enjoy God, or we can enjoy the things of the world. But we can't do both, so we have to make a choice. Now, of course, there's a kernel of truth to that. We can't enjoy God and enjoy sin. We do have to make a choice there. We also can't enjoy God if we're enjoying something that replaces God or leads us away from God because once we lead away from God, we're leading away from our source of joy. And it's also true that almost anything good we can turn into an idol. But too often, well-meaning Christians think that if they're enjoying something in the world, then they aren't enjoying God. But that's not biblical. Ecclesiastes 5.19 says that, When God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. If you have something in your life that you enjoy and it's not a sinful pleasure, then you have it because it was a gift from God. So how do you know if it's a sinful pleasure? A good test is to ask yourself, can I enjoy this thing and enjoy God at the same time? If you're in a relationship with a person and you can enjoy being with that person and enjoy God at the same time, then that relationship is probably not an idol. If you can enjoy an activity and you can enjoy that activity and enjoy God at the same time, then that activity is probably not sinful. In the 1920s, there was an Olympic sprinter named Eric Liddell who would one day go on to become a missionary in China. And you might have heard of him. He was... His life was made in the movie Chariots of Fire that won the Oscar several years ago. The devil once said that, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's how we should feel about the gifts God's given us. We can enjoy the gift and enjoy the giver. In fact, if you're struggling to enjoy God, it might be helpful to help you express your joy God, by expressing joy in his gifts and expressing gratitude for God for those gifts. That's one of the ways we get to grow in our knowledge and experience and enjoyment of God. And take honey, for example. In biblical times, honey was the standard of sweetness and one of the most enjoyable delicacies that could be found. In Psalm 119, David said that God's word was sweeter than honey. And his son Solomon said that wisdom is like honey. And we know God's word is like because we know what honey is like. We can compare the two. I'd go so far as to say that the primary reason honey exists on this side of our fallen world is so that we can know God better. Now if mankind had not fallen into sin, then we should know God in a way, earthly goods in a way that we know God. For example, rather than saying God's decrees are like honey, we would say honey. It's like God's decrees, because that would be what we think is most sweet. But in our fallen world, we often have more of an experiential knowledge of God's creation than we do of the Creator. And that's why God uses the things of the earth to teach us about himself. We know something about God through the things that God gives us. So use the enjoyable gifts that God has given you, and let them deepen your appreciation and your gratitude for him. It can be good to eat honey and enjoy it, but it's much better to eat, enjoy eating the honey while being in awe and gratitude for the one who gave it to you and who gave you the ability to enjoy it. There's another helpful way you can grow in your enjoyment of God. God is a person, so we should expect to enjoy God the same way we do human persons. And think about someone you enjoy. Maybe it's a romantic partner or a family member, or a close friend. What does it mean for you to enjoy them? Well, it means in part, we enjoy being in their presence and spending time with them. We enjoy getting to know them. We enjoy talking to them and hearing from them, such as through written communication. We enjoy thinking about them. We enjoy the things they create for us. We enjoy the things, the gifts they give us. We enjoy and appreciate the things they've done for us. We enjoy doing things that make them happy. We even enjoy spending time with those who share and appreciate our passion for them. These are just some of the ways our enjoyment of another human being is similar to how we can enjoy God. Now, of course, God is infinitely great and greater than any human being. So there are considerable differences between enjoying God, enjoying a person, a friend, or a spouse. But the difference is mostly a matter of. Of degree, the extent and depth of our enjoyment, rather than a difference in kind. So if you aren't enjoying God, it may be because you're not really seeing Him as a person. And the takeaway here is that we can experience fullness of joy in God's presence when we enjoy God's gifts and enjoy God as a person. And finally, I want to briefly look at the last part of our verse At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So the right hand is a place of honor and importance. And think of the way you use the term right hand man. It refers to somebody who's very important, usually to your work or your life. And David says in verse eight, that God is at his right hand. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. David is saying that the presence of God is before him and that God is in a place of honor. And then in verse 11, David refers to the place of God's right hand. He says that at the right hand of the Father are pleasures forevermore. And within scripture, the right hand often is used figuratively to refer to the place of honor and authority that Jesus has in relation to the Father. For example, at the end of the Gospel of Mark, it says, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of the Father. Also in Acts 7, 55 through 56, we hear that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So God the Son, Jesus, is at the right hand of the Father. But remember that Paul also says in the first chapter of Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. All things were created in heaven and earth were created for and through Jesus. That was true when God created the heavens and the earth, and it's gonna be true when he creates the new heavens and the new earth. So in using this term, is David referring to, when he uses the term pleasures, is he referring to the pleasure of Jesus, or is he referring to the pleasures of the earthly things, or the future earthly things, I think he's talking about both. In the parable of the talents, Jesus says that the master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. If we're faithful, if we be put in charge of many things, many enjoyable things in the life to come, but while there may be many pleasures to be found in the new heavens and the new earth, the greatest pleasure of all, the greatest pleasure we're gonna enjoy for all eternity, will be Jesus. Remember that earlier I said that eternity has already started? We don't have to wait to start finding our greatest pleasure. We don't have to wait to start taking pleasure in Jesus. But how do we do that? And one of the most overlooked ways is by learning to preach to yourself rather than listening to yourself. If you listen to yourself, you're eventually gonna hear the wrong message. You'll hear the message that you don't matter, the world doesn't matter. You'll hear the message that you're all that matters and so you can be able to do whatever you want. Or you'll hear the message that no one truly cares about you, nobody truly loves you. If you listen to yourself long enough, you'll eventually hear a message that drags you away from God, drags you out of the presence of God, and drags you away from the source of all pleasure. That's why you need to learn to preach to yourself the truths of scripture, especially the truths of the gospel. So if you're unclear about what the gospel is, here's a brief summary. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God and became man for us, that he died in order to restore us to our relationship with God, and that he was raised from the dead and established over all things. Preaching the gospel to yourself means reminding yourself of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and how you rescued us from sin. It also means reminding yourself of why he died for us. Why did Jesus die for our sins? First Peter three tells us, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus died in order to restore us to our relationship with God the Father. He suffered for our sins in order to bring us to God. And why did Jesus bring us to God? Because in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy. And at the right hand, where Jesus is, are pleasures forevermore. In other words, Jesus died to bring us to God so that we could be in the presence of God and enjoy him forever. That's the takeaway I don't want you to miss. Jesus died to bring us to God so that we'd be in the presence of God and take pleasure in him Forever. Jesus died to bring you to God so that you would be in the presence of God and take pleasure in him forever. How amazing is that? Years after I stumbled on the Westminster Catechism's claim that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, I found this comment by C.S. Lewis. The Westminster Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these things are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. When we enjoy God, we bring glory to God. And as Isaiah 43, seven says, that's the reason we were created. We were created for the purpose of glorifying God. And when you think of it this way, you realize why the good news of the gospel is even better than you could ever imagine. Jesus died so you could enjoy pleasures, pleasures beyond your wildest imagination for all of eternity. That's incredible news that we often take for granted. And that's why I said at the beginning of the sermon that not enjoying God may be your biggest problem in life. If you aren't filled to capacity with delight and pleasure in God, then you are missing out on the purpose of your life If you aren't filled to capacity with the delight and pleasure of God, then you're missing out on the reason for your existence. If you aren't filled to capacity with the pleasure and delight in God, then you're missing out on the greatest gift that has ever been given to you. That's God himself. So don't go another day without missing your purpose. Don't go another day without missing the reason for your existence. Don't go another day taking the gospel for granted. Do whatever it takes. Make whatever changes you need to make in your life so that you can start glorifying God by enjoying God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are humbled and amazed that while we were trying to escape your presence, you sent your son to rescue us when we were seeking to find inferior pleasure in the things of this world, you made it possible for us to have the greatest pleasure of all. We thank you for allowing us to come into your presence. Help us to seek your face so that we may find the fullness of joy. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen.